Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis, and this is On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. This week, we're going to get into the story behind a little tune from the year 2000. Total Earworm. I know you've heard it. It was a little something like this. Who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who? Yes, that's the Baja Men singing their hit single, Who Let the Dogs Out? Do you love this song? Do you hate this song? Do you love to hate this song? Well, Ben Sisto became obsessed with it. He's the subject of the documentary, Who Let the Dogs Out? A film about... Who let the dogs out? Ben researched this song for, get this, eight years. Eight years! His obsession became a documentary about songwriting, lawsuits, and a bunch of people who claim they wrote it. Trying to find the song's originator is what took Ben on a long adventure. His search for an answer, any kind of answer, took him to the UK, the Bahamas, all across the United States, and even Toronto. So for Ben, it all started with a Wikipedia page. It was 2011, and he'd just moved to New York City. He didn't have a job, but he did have quite a bit of spare time. And while surfing the wiki entry for the song he noticed one of the citations wasn't properly credited. And I thought I would correct that citation. I have friends in sort of the free culture Wikipedia community, and I thought it would be a a funny little in-joke, and it just kind of rabbit-holed from there. The citation was about the song's origins. It mentioned that a hairstylist in the UK, some guy named Keith, had heard a version of the track and handed it over to a music producer, who then went on to make it the hit that it became. But the citation never listed Keith's full name or described who he was, So Ben went out to find him. Along the way, he encountered more than a few people who lay claim to letting the dogs out. There's probably a half dozen people who take credit for writing the song. And then through my research, I get all these weird emails from people who are like, my old roommate was a production assistant when they made the video. And like when the dogs needed to be let out of the cage, it was like his job to let them out. (laughs) So that guy let the dog. So there's like... I always tell people that the answer kind of depends on what you mean when you ask the question. It's got like a like a Heisenberg sort of uncertainty kind of problem going on. <laughs> when he started doing a traveling lecture on the answers he found, director Brent Hodge approached him. Hodge has directed documentaries about the TV show Freaks and Geeks and the late comedian Chris Farley. And then it turned out that Hodge moved from Canada to New York and he lives like, I don't know, five blocks from me. So we met up for coffee and um, I think he really liked the story. And he, like me, is I think the kind of person who will just like keep knocking on doors until he gets the answer, you know, that he wants. So who let the dogs out? Let's find out. But first, we're going to hear from one of our producers, Matthew O'Mara. Hey, Matthew here. I'm a producer on the show. I also help produce the On Poly podcast hosted by Steve Pagan and John Michael McGrath. Did you know our team has a brand new On Poly newsletter? Well, if you're interested in Ontario politics, you need to subscribe. And if you don't think you're interested, you've never really heard a podcast on Ontario politics quite like this. Check out the On Poly newsletter to see for yourself. Go to tvo.org forward slash On Poly newsletter. Now on to the podcast. 
Ben Sisto, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I guess the first question is kind of obvious one, but what first got you interested in this song? Um, I was jobless for uh, an amount of time, and I was spending a lot of time just like looking around on the internet for things like Wikipedia articles, and I, I just noticed a missing citation on a Wikipedia article, and I thought I would correct that citation. I have friends in sort of the free culture Wikipedia community, and I thought it would be a, a funny little in-joke, uh, and it just kind of rabbit-holed from there. And uh, so you went on the Wikipedia page. Did you actually end up correcting the Wikipedia page, or what happened no, after that? I've actually abstained from ever editing the Wikipedia page because I'm doing this research. Uh, I think it makes me like an impartial editor. So I'm doing like the mm-hmm. movie and the research, and then if that informs somebody else and that person uh, makes the wiki edit, I think that's a bit has a bit more like journalistic integrity. Mm-hmm. So then, I guess, so where did this, I guess, journey take you then after your... Uh after you found this uh, missing citation? I've been to like London and Seattle, um, Toronto, kind of like a, a lot of, yeah, mainly like UK and, and around the States. And I've gone on tours sort of giving this like inconvenient truth style PowerPoint presentation about it. So yeah, just a mix of like college gigs and like DIY venues and bars and really any, any place that will let me talk. Hmm. And the song itself, I mean, who let the dogs out? If, if, I mean, most people, I think, know it when they hear it. But if you were to describe it to someone who's never heard it before, what would you say this song is actually about? Um, hmm. <laughs> That's a funny question because nobody's ever actually asked me. Um, <laughs> well, I guess it, so you mean the Bahamend version, right? Just for clarity. Yeah, because I, yeah, yeah. I think that, yeah, everyone should know the, the, the Bahamend is the, the one that made this uh, very this song very popular. But we'll get into, I guess, the other versions. But yeah, yeah like if someone was to ask you kind of what it was about. I would say it's just a very simple call and response style stadium chant where the actual like lyrics and stuff are kind of irrelevant. You know, it's just a song about like chanting and barking and dogs being <laughs> let out. I don't know. There's there's really not much to it uh, from like an intellectual standpoint. It's a kind of a like the music is sort of informed by like things like Miami bass and early Quincy Jones productions um, and like a Trinidadian style of carnival music called Junkanoo. So there's a lot of uh, kind of international um, styles from across different decades of production involved in the music. Hmm. I was trying to rack my brains around uh, um, if there's any other type of song that's kind of achieved this sort of ubiquity. Um, I guess Macarena is the the only one I could really think of, but are, are there other songs like this that you can think of? Yeah, I usually cite the Macarena also as being like a near, like similar in terms of like global popularity. I don't think that there's a lot of songs that really compare though, because it's a song that, well, you know, the core of the presentation is about how it's a chant really and not a song. And the Bahaman song is kind of this like delivery mechanism for this chant, which has like a powerful mimetic quality. So it's like there, there are generations of people you know, much younger than me who haven't heard the song, but know the chant. And I can't really think of a lot of pop songs that have crossed over in in that powerful a way. Well, the, the Baha men version is the one that I guess, uh, took off. What's one that most people know. Do you, do you know why that is? Why that one? Because, uh, I mean, this chant had existed before, and, and there was a, a, a Anselm Douglas, who you interview in the, fil- in the film, who, who you interview, uh, he had a version of it, actually, which I prefer more, actually. Um, but do you know why that one, I guess, had the commercial success that it did? 
I'm going to say it has a lot to do with the sort of marketing acumen of uh, the producer, Steve Greenberg. He did a couple of things. One was he hired uh, a company called Pro Sports Marketing, and he asked them to work the song to stadiums the same way you would traditionally market a single to radio. And that, that, that sort of helped usher in the era of like jock jams and things like that. Greg Green is an emerging talent within the Seattle Mariners organization, and he programs a lot of in-game music and sound effects. I didn't have a, a song for one of our backup catchers, Joe Oliver, and I threw it out there for him. Alex Rodriguez now wants this song that I thought was, you know, we were just having fun with. Before that, stadiums were playing like Gary Glitter Rock and Roll Part 2 or whatever. It was kind of like, or like Queen, you know, but it hadn't, sports hadn't been marketed this aggressively. Um, also, it was right around the time that the internet or the internet was switching over to broadband. So you had a lot more people who were able to like get quick access to things. They were like going on the Nickelodeon homepage and upvoting this. They had all the people in the label uh, office just upvoting the song because this was before cookies and stuff like that. So I think it was just sort of like it came online with the internet and with other aspects of mass culture that have, you know, it was just the right time for marketing, I think. Yeah, I actually forgot this was kind of the, the beginning of the Napster era, wasn't it? Yeah, I think in like, yeah, Napster and SoulSeek. I don't know how many, I mean, I think of those, my experience with Napster was like, like trading weird, like rare hardcore albums and stuff. I can't imagine who was trading, who let the dogs out. <laughs> like who, <laughs> who takes on the uh, criminal risk to obtain that song, but you know. Who waits an hour for that to finish downloading, right? Yeah, yeah. So the Baja Men didn't really like this song originally, did they? I think that they were sort of indifferent to it. They were aware of it. You know, they knew the Anselm Douglas version and that it had been a hit. So they didn't really see much or it had been a hit locally. Uh, and they didn't really see much point in in them doing a cover. But I guess they tur- they changed their minds when it became this huge success. Yeah, th- their uh, former lead singer had left the band to become a backup singer for Lenny Kravitz. And, that, and in that like deficit... Um, they brought in like three younger like lead singers to kind of be the the people that you like see on the CD cover and all that stuff. And I mm-hmm. think that their their energy plus Steve Greenberg, their producer's enthusiasm for the song, ultimately won them over. You know, they were doing other covers. I think it just took a little convincing on this one. Do you have a favorite version? A favorite version? Um, I guess I'm partial. Well. The the group Miami Boom Productions from 1992, they had this song called Who Let the Dogs Out. And like lyrically, you know, it's, um I don't know, it's like 15-year-old boys trying to be like two live crew. So it's just like uh, a freight train of misogyny. So but if you take like that out of it, the actual production of it is really interesting. And it, it's like a good early Miami bass track. So maybe that one. I, I was partial to the Will Ferrell doing Robert Goulet. Uh, yes. uh, version of it on SNL. <laughs> Another <classic. laughs> I was really happy when you included that. Who let the dogs out? Who let those dogs out? Who let those little mutts go? Yeah. <laughs> the thing that struck me that was uh, that I had never considered with this when I heard this song is it was actually originally, or well, the, at least the Anselm Douglas version was about female empowerment. Did mm-hmm. that sort of get lost over time? Yeah, I think. Um... Well, there's a both the Anselm Douglas version and the Twenty Fingers version sort of have this um, core message at their center. You know, it's like about 
addressing misogynistic and like uh, heteronormative like uh, behaviors like within like dance culture. Ladies, take charge of this one. Are you on things? <laughs> I leaving you in charge. And oh, and some Douglas want to address this term. Uh, skettle, which kind of translates to like a loose person, uh, typically a woman. Um, and I didn't, I didn't expect when I was researching the history of this song that those elements would come up. I think it's so. There's two sides to it. It's interesting and it's good because it's like men sticking up for women. Um, but there's also the kind of this problem with the documentary, I think, which is that all of these songs are also written by men. So it's like. I don't know. There, there's not actually there. There are nods to female empowerment, but there, there's not a lot of like actual women in the movie. And you know, it's kind of us just documenting the the truth of it. But I do wish that um, there had been more women. Sandra Gillette, who sang the Twenty Fingers version, we tried to. I, I've been trying to talk to her for like eight years, and she just seems to want uh, nothing to do with this research. So. That's interesting. I wonder why. I think that I I don't know the exact details, but I believe that she was like a receptionist or had some kind of part-time job and was sort of like chosen to like learn how to sing and dance and become, you know, this like uh this pop star and prior to this song You're a Dog that she did, she had this single called Short Dick Man and that song was like really 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 big like intern it was like a massive chart topper internationally and my guess is that you know some people just hit that level of fame and it's like not for them and she probably just has moved on with her life i think she has kids and you know like i don't know i i try to like be empathetic and picture like the phone rings and it's me asking her about like a single from like 20 <laughs> years ago like she really has little incentive to answer so well, a big theme in the in this uh, in this film is uh, ownership, and I, I wonder what this. I wonder what you learned about who owns a song from uh, from this project. Maybe not. I didn't learn many new things about issues of ownership and copyright, but it definitely reinforces um, thing things that I have always believed in or have heard from other artists. One is to always protect your publishing rights, uh, and two is that copyright is essentially the right to be held up in court until you're financially unable to sustain legal battles any further. You know, the the copyright system um, and the IP system are very complicated. And most people on their own, when they're trying to like have a family and have jobs, they don't have like the time or resources to navigate that. So typically the people who win out in these cases are the large corporations who can, you know, do a quick like, I don't know, um, they, they can just quickly say like we're going to make a million dollars on this song so we'll spend a quarter million dollars on legal fees still come out profitable and i think there's a lot of just sort of squashing or go away money or you know like financial silencing that happens so although like um, i think in america there's this idea that copyright really protects artists uh it doesn't it it just upholds existing power structures my name is lita rosario and i'm an entertainment lawyer in washington dc Songs are usually collaborations. The music gets 50% ownership and the lyrics get 50% ownership. You end up with um, equal shares if there's no written agreement. So if there's two people, it's 50-50. The legal battle lasted approximately six years. 
There were a series of lawsuits that were filed to determine who the ownership of the song was. Who who got like stinking rich off this song? I think the Baja men made a good amount of money. Steve Greenberg, the producer, made a lot of money. Um, I think the publisher, Destin Songs, made a bunch of money. There's an artist named uh, Chuck Smooth who got into a legal battle with Baja men early on. And I think they made some money. There's some lawyers who kind of got themselves interjected in the mix that, you know, maybe still own like 1% of the master rights. And like what we learned in licensing the song is that, you know, like say, let's say like a big record company, a owns 99% of the song and they're totally into the movie and they want the licensing to happen. You need full sign on from everybody. So you have these people with, who own like 1% and they only own it because of some like court settlement years ago, but you've still got to pay them, you know, like whatever they want. So it's still, it's interesting that it seems the case is still that all of the people who didn't get paid in the first place still aren't getting paid. And all of the people who are getting paid for, um, not nefarious, but less than direct reasons are still getting paid. Who isn't getting paid? Well, I think that um, Miami Boom Productions should be seeing something. The difficulty is with copyright cases, you need to be able to prove these two things, which is access and similarity. So like, you know, let's say I wrote a song and was uh, called it Imagine, and I played it for you. And you said, Ben, that sounds exactly like John Lennon's Imagine. If I said, <laughs> I've never heard that before, most courts would say that's impossible, right? But so you have to kind of show that you both, that that tracks are similar, but that there was a this path of access. Uh, and what Miami Boom Productions is lacking is a direct path of access. The thing about copyright and intellectual property, though, is it's all sort of open to the interpretation of like a given court. Um, and it's it's always like in a state of flux. So they definitely, I think, deserve credit. I don't know like legally how you could say they would get paid. Um, it would be awesome if this film gets sold to like some, you know, big production house or or uh streaming service or something so i can turn around and hit them off with a couple of bucks but yeah i don't know it's uh unfortunate what about the the two uh radio djs they're from canada too it's just my name on this one he didn't bring his i didn't bring mine patrick stephenson and leroy williams he's got one too we're all in the studio. Handsome gets a copy of it. Handsome does his thing. Yeah. He changes it. He turns it one now. Uh-huh. But we were passionate about creating and not taking care of the business. And the business bit us in the end. So at this point, this is when you decided to sue. It wasn't a matter of decide to sue. It was like, we want to know what our rights were. Everybody wants to say they wrote a hit song. I'm like, no, dude, we wrote the song. Do you think they deserve any money for this? I think that they actually did. Originally... I was under the impression that they did not get any money, but I, it's possible that they, I don't know the details, but one of them kind of off camera said something to us that in, indicated that there was, they, they had gotten more money than was originally let on. Uh, did you need permission yourself to use this song in the doc? Yeah, we, we got the song licensed officially. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of stuff in there that we kind of ran through, errors and omissions just to make sure it was cool and fair use. Um, all that was handled by the film company, but we did properly license the song. The film opens with you speaking to a lawyer and she's kind of upset with you for trying to find, I guess, the original 
uh, version of this uh, of this song. Did you get worried at all about being sued? No. I mean, the thing is, like, I'm not. I have no financial interest. I'm I basically my, all of my research is I'm just calling people and I'm kind of asking them like fairly binary yes or no questions. There's like no um, like problems with like defamation or I'm not slandering anybody or I'm not telling any lies. You know, I'm, I'm calling people, asking them questions and everybody who's in the doc, uh, you know, like everyone signed their paperwork. Everyone's happy to be in it. And I think everybody is happy with the results. Um, and since Haji Films came on to handle all of like the legal stuff, I guess for me, that's like another layer of protection. I don't know if they were ever nervous about getting sued or not. You mentioned sports earlier, and um, I wonder what role sports culture plays in making a song a hit. Um, hmm. What role does sports culture play? The Seattle Mariners, for example, picked the song up when they were having a great season, and this was like Alex Rodriguez's at-bat song, and he was you know, an emerging star. So I think if like the song is bonded to the right player, the right team, the right time, you know, it can definitely, yeah. And then because of the Mariners success, the Mets used it and that year was a subway series. So it was getting a lot of play and that meant other teams in other sports like football and hockey started using it. Um, so yeah, I think sports is a, you know, I mean, people love sports, right? Mm-hmm. Um, until recently, I think one of the rooms in your apartment was dedicated to who let the dogs out. It was like a museum. Yeah, we had a small sort of like a uh, half size bedroom in the apartment that I kept all my memorabilia and would have friends come over and, and take a look. Um, but that room has recently changed hands. The uh, new owner is my <laughs> my daughter who you hear in the background. <laughs> she gent- <laughs> gentrified me out of my studio. <laughs> so what happened to the stuff? Uh, everything is now in storage at my parents' house. Oh, so you're not going to throw it out or anything? No, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, there's still, people still send me stuff. It's like a collection that maybe is still growing a little bit. This was directed by Brent Hodge, who's made other documentaries like uh, I Am Chris Farley, uh, Freaks and Geeks. And uh, I, I wonder what made you decide to work with him on this. Well, he sort of found me. What kind of happened was he had done a documentary called Pistol Shrimps, and it was playing at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles. And I used to work for Ace Hotel. So um, a, a mutual friend had gotten in touch with me and said, hey, this thing's sold out. Can you help me get in? So I helped him get in. He met Hodge and then just through conversation said, Hey, if you like kind of like weird stories to, to make documentaries about, you should really talk to my friend, Ben. And then it turned out that Hodge moved from Canada to New York and he lives like, I don't know, five blocks from me. So we met up for coffee (laughs) and, um, I think he really liked the story and he like me is, I think the kind of person who will just like keep knocking on doors until he gets the answer, you know, that he wants And then also the thing that other people have approached me about this before, but what I really liked about uh, Haji's approach, everyone on the team there really understood that it's only entertaining if you take it like really serious and like really deadpan. And that like, I mean, it is funny. It's like a stupid song and there are jokes in it and there are (laughs) characters in it. But the humor comes from the fact that it's also very like serious and they, they didn't ever try to like, make it funny they just kind of like let it play out and i really appreciated their um 
I don't know, their like dedication to helping me. I'm trying to think. We just had the same vision for it. I think that's the easiest way to say it. How would you say this project has uh, changed your life? <laughs> well, I'm now the world's leading expert on something. So there's that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's really changed my life. The The funny thing is, like, when I talk to people usually for the first time about this, they have this idea that I'm, like, going to be this, like, obsessive R-crumb kind of, like, weirdo. And, like, you know, this was, like, my ticket out of isolation or something. But, like, I've always been, like, sort of uh, an event producer, someone who likes research projects, um, like, an artist who, you know, I've, like, gone on tour with people, all this stuff. So it just sort of has kind of been a natural extension of things that I really like to do. And hopefully, you know, this has maybe more eyeballs on it than other projects I've done. So hopefully that means like, I'll have a couple more opportunities, but it doesn't really feel like anything's changed that much. I know that's not an exciting answer, but it's just kind of like, you know, wake up, find out who let the dogs are out and <laughs> go back to bed. I don't know. No, it's a, but it's an honest one, and and, and I guess uh, I wonder if you've said all you had to say about this, or is there more to who let the dogs out? I mean, is there? Are you waiting to hear? You know, maybe in 1985 there was a, another chant, someone else chanting who let the dogs out. Are you expecting that to happen? You know, if it does, maybe maybe somebody else can answer it. I don't know. Um, right now, <laughs> I think you know, having like a a baby and all the, all the stuff like my priorities definitely shifted. And so I'm like focusing on a couple of different things now. Um, but you know, the, it is a project. I will say that every time I say the door is closed on it, someone mails me a weird record or I get like a strange DM. So maybe I should stop saying that it's ever really over. Then last question for you. What sense of ownership do you feel over this song, having taken audiences through its history and now in a documentary? I mean, I feel no ownership of over it. If anything, I, I just sort of feel like, um, I don't know, like a gardener or something, or like, uh, you know, this is all information that was out there, and I was able to, you know, kind of gather it all up into one place. And this is sort of what I was saying about it's like everything I've kind of always done. Like, when I ran nightclubs, you know, like, you pick three bands, you bring them together, and they mean something in as like a particular constellation of things in a room at a given place and time. And with this project, it's like I bring a bunch of records together, or a bunch of archivists, a bunch of producers. It's just brings stuff together. It is what it is. And then like it dissipates back out into the ether. So, you know, I, I give my version of the story through like a talk, and I want to keep doing that. Um, and the movie is what it is. But it's not my story. It's just a story that I tell. And it's a story that I've been able to tell with a lot of help from a lot of interesting and smart people who probably have their own versions of it. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's not mine. That's for sure. Well, it's a great place to leave it, uh, Ben. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. Yeah, thanks. Sorry about all the interruptions, but you know, got like uh, human life over here. Absolutely. So. <laughs> and that's the most important thing. Thanks yeah, again. Yeah. And that's the podcast. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and better yet, tell a friend. And if you want to get in touch, write us at ondocs at tvo.org, and follow me on Twitter at colinellis81. Thanks to producers Chantel Berganza and Matthew O'Mara, and production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Howell. Special thanks to our media research team as well. Our podcast manager is Hannah Sung. We'll catch you at the next screening.